following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. A number of years ago, I wrote an article that was uh, published in uh, a syndicated uh, publication. Uh, It was a short response to something that had been written, uh, charging the church generally with inconsistency, not not our church, but the church generally, with inconsistency in its application of biblical principles regarding the issue of marriage. And the criticism was something oversimplified, but like this. Well, you churches are so lax on on marriage to begin with, and uh, divorce for any reason, and remarriage, and all of that, so... What's the, what's the problem of having uh, gay marriage in the church? And this was a, a, a case made on the, from the Episcopal Church. This is just six years ago or so. That case has been brewing in that church for, for a long time, many more than six years. But I responded to that charge, and uh, over the years it comes up uh, again and again. And I wanted to uh, fortify you with a reason or reasons why you, how you can respond to this charge because if you're engaged in any kind of uh, evangelism, any kind of defense of the faith, uh, any kind of interaction with people who are of a, uh, an unbelieving persuasion, you will probably run into this, uh, this uh, argument of inconsistency or of what I call the cherry-picking uh, from the scriptures, uh, you know, preferred verses. And the idea is, you know, hey, you guys are just cherry-picking certain verses, just ones that you like because you're haters or you're bigots or whatever, and you pick those ones that are convenient for you, but then the other ones that you don't like, you don't pick those verses. Uh, I think, in fact, if I recall, it seems in my memory banks I'm drawing up the uh, a circumstance just like that in which that charge was leveled out of the book of Leviticus, I believe it was, by none other than the former president, Barack Obama. And so he brought that kind of argument into uh, common, in the commonplace, into the uh, kind of colloquial, uh, you know, situation. And so people who maybe had not thought of that before would say, oh, that's a clever argument. I think I'll use that. Uh, next time I'm speaking to a, a bigoted Christian, so to speak, out there. Well, you know that we don't accept that charge of being bigots at all. What we're doing is we're trying to follow the scriptures and the authority of the Bible. So let me get, lay out the criticism as I have it here for us, for us this morning. I just have a single sheet of notes here we'll go over, and I was hoping to have some interaction with you on this, although our crowd is a little smaller today, but maybe you can... Uh, You can still help us, and uh, those of you at home will just have to bear with us on that. Um, The criticism goes like this. Christians choose some commands from the Bible, like Leviticus 18.22, but not others, like Leviticus 23 and, and a couple in chapter 11 I selected. And they say this is hypocrisy and inconsistent selectivity uh, from the Bible. So... Let's look at uh, briefly these uh, commands that I mentioned, just so you see. Whoops, I'll get those later. Um, And turn to Leviticus in your Pentateuch, in your opening books of your Old Testament, as we call it. Leviticus 18, 22. 
this message is uh, geared towards uh, those that are a little older, uh, not the youngest of children. So if you want to have your kids do something else, if you're online watching, that may be uh, useful. Leviticus 18 and verse 22, I'll give you just a moment to, uh, to get there. And in Leviticus 18, it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. So we can simplify that down for younger folks to say that what it's saying here is that, um, that there should not be marriage between a man and a man or a, man or a woman and a, ma- and a woman. So just a man and a woman should be married together, but not of the same uh, sex or gender. We'll just simplify and call them the same thing for now. Um, and so that command, you know, is, is uh, the criticism that says, well, you, you know, use that because that's convenient because you don't like that kind of behavior and you want to condemn it. But what about Leviticus 23.3? You know, why don't you, why don't you use that command today, some of you Christian people? It says, six days work shall be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is a Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So the person who's criticizing says, have you ever done work on Saturday? And if you answer yes, they say what? Aha, got you. Okay. What about Leviticus? uh, Go back in the book 11, chapter 11, 7 and 10. Chapter 11, verse 7. Chapter 11 of Leviticus, verse number 7. It says, And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. Okay, there's the uh, part of the kosher diet of not having pork, swine, pig, meat, and so it's unclean. Why don't you follow that? Christian, if you follow Leviticus 18 so fastidiously, about Leviticus 11.10? But all that are in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. So what about that? Have you ever had crab? Shrimp? Uh, what else? Uh, what else would count under that heading? What's that? Lobster? Yeah. Have you ever had any of those, uh, those kinds of foods at, at, at Red Lobster? Uh, no, no uh, we haven't received advertising dollars from Red Lobster here. Uh, have you ever had any of that in your home or at a party or something, a fancy meal? So you're hypocrites for taking some and not others. So how would you respond to that charge? How would you respond to that? First of all, you have to be familiar with what I just went over to be able to even understand what the charge is. You don't want to be caught flat-footed and not realize what the person is doing to criticize you. So that's what we've done so far has been helpful already because it informs us. And there are a number of other, you could go through the book of Leviticus or Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, some of the other passages where there are laws and find things that we apply, things that we don't apply today and and uh, somebody who is, wants to be uh, critically minded could say, look, you're inconsistent. 
So we know that. Now, how do we respond to it? You just say, oh, well, I'll have to get back to you on that. I have to ask my pastor what he says about that. How would you respond? John. Okay, so John is saying, well, just fast forward in your Bible to the New Testament and look in Romans chapter 1, and uh, there are other places as well. So we'll address that uh, a little bit more detail, but do you have any other responses that you might offer? Uh, yes, Darius. Okay. Okay, so again, a, a, a version of the argument John offered, Darius offers, and that is go to the New Testament and you'll find that the food laws were abrogated by the Lord in two instances he gives. We'll look at those in a moment. Anybody else have a, have a uh, response to that criticism? Ben? Uh-huh, yes. Yeah. So uh, what are you doing with, what are you actually saying when you say that? Are you, you know, what Ben has said is, are you, uh, when you respond to the person who is a critic, you say, well, are you saying that thou shalt not kill does not apply today? So what, can you describe that a little more? What are you doing with that argument? Okay, so that's a good technique. Take their argument to its logical conclusion, which exposes its absurdity. That's a very good technique that can be used, and it's not just a technique, it's not just like a trick. It is to show inconsistency on their part. Um, so let me, uh, anybody else? Anybody else have uh, what you could do here? How could you respond? I'll give four thoughts that are some of these and, and a little different as well. So first of all, the critic of, of your position is also, so what's he, what's he doing? He's saying you're picking and choosing what you like from Leviticus. Yes? So the problem is he is also picking and choosing what he doesn't like from Leviticus or elsewhere in the Bible. And in his criticism, he favors the Bible's command against hypocrisy, right? What he's doing is he's saying, you, you know, you, sh you shall not be a hypocrite. Well, where does he get that idea from? So he's favoring that command, but he's disfavoring the Bible's command against gay marriage or homosexuality. He probably, although this didn't come up explicitly, he probably also agrees with the Bible's teaching against murder, you think? Probably, I mean, he wouldn't like to volunteer himself to be the first victim. Um, he probably uh, agrees with the Bible's teaching against lying, against stealing, against slander, but not with the Bible's teaching against homosexuality or fornication or fornication 
perhaps some other select things. So I would say that one response would be, he's not legitimately able to criticize you when he's doing the exact same thing you are. Make sense? He's picking and choosing as well. Secondly, the critic is likely a supporter of what we call relativism. He may not be, but he may likely be in this day and age. What is relativism? Truth is relative to the circumstances in which you find yourself. Truth is my truth, your truth, anybody's truth. There's different truths for different people or circumstances, situational ethics. So if he believes that there is no such thing as an absolute, then how can he say, first of all, that uh, thou shalt not be a hypocrite is valid? And then to carry on from there, he really cannot legitimately criticize hypocrisy, which on your thinking is not hypocrisy at all. I mean, do you feel that you're hypocritical for holding to Leviticus 18.22's principle, but not Leviticus 23.3's principle? Do you feel like, oh man, I've been a real hypocrite. I've got to change my understanding of, of the Bible here. No, you, you are not being hypocritical, and there are reasons for that. So uh, somebody who is a believer in moral relativism cannot hold you to an absolute standard while they hold themselves to a relative standard. Make sense? You with me? You think this will work on the university campus, brother, to speak to people like this? Do you think they would see your point? That's it. Well, you can do what I've done here by saying in, uh, in verse, in, in, in not verse one, but in, in my response number one, ask them, well, do you believe that slander is wrong? Do you believe that murder is wrong? Do you believe that lying is wrong? And I say, yes, yes, yes. Well, you have them. You say, well, you, you know, but then you believe this other thing is not wrong. So conclude, I conclude from that that you, Mr. Critic, are inconsistent because you're picking some things and not other things, right? So, yes, asking a question is a powerful tool because it allows them or makes them have to engage and think. People, of course, today don't like dogmatic assertions, even though we know the dogmatic assertions are correct, right? So I would say the, uh, the concern that you're uh, raising there is one more of methodology, say, manner, but the truth that you're conveying is exactly what I've already conveyed. Yeah, so... So, and you might ask in the second response here, not only about the picking and choosing, but are you, responding to the critic, are you a supporter of relativism? Do you believe in relativism? Well, if they don't know what that is, then, then that's a problem, but you could define it for them uh, somehow and ask, well, do you believe that way? Well, yeah.
Well, but that's yeah. So that that brings us to the whole DEI thing. That's uh, you know that's all the rage these days. Um, but as you've noted before, and as we've noted, if DEI is based on relativism, it doesn't do a very good job of it because there are certain things that are absolutely verboten. That's not relativism. That's that's uh, either tyranny or. Uh, authoritarianism or absolutism, but of a different form. It's an absolutism that is from a, from a popularly derived morality that people hold that's still a kind of a relativistic sort of thing. So if somebody does truly believe in what we might call uh, true classical liberalism, they could be a relativist and a consistent one and say, well, you believe that and that's fine for you. I believe differently and that's fine for me. The problem today is that we've moved well beyond classical liberalism, which you know, embraces free speech and free thought, and moved into an area which decries free speech and free thought and says you're evil if you have certain kinds of thought or certain exercise certain kinds of speech. And so then it becomes tyrannical because they want to shut that down. Yes? Yeah, so Tim. Yeah, so Tim is saying that it's supported by social media, and he went down an avenue that I wasn't going to go down. The, the avenue was the anonymous, the anonymity of social media, but I was going to say the, uh, the, the like-mindedness of the technocracy, which allows certain kinds of speech to be more free than other kinds. So they would uh, support certain brands of relativism, but if it gets crosswise to their sensibilities, then they shut it down. So anyways, my point is to say you have, you're facing this criticism. How are you going to respond? Number one, they're picking and choosing as well. Because let's face it, where does all morality come from? All true morality. It comes from God. So in any wise in which the unbelieving person is selecting, is, is, has some morality that agrees with yours, they've borrowed it from God, whom they may say doesn't exist, but yet we know that he does. So they've borrowed it from God, and they're using it against God, in a sense, against you. Well, that's, that's invalid. You can't do that. Okay? That's inconsistent. The real issue for the unbeliever is who's unmoored from the, from the morality of God is where do they get their morality from? And if it's just from evolution or it's just you know, common consensus or it's relativism, then they cannot logically charge you with any kind of inconsistency because they're doing the same thing. Secondly, as we've said, the, the critic, well, we've just addressed this. The critic is supportive of relativism, relativism so he cannot criticize hypocrisy rightly. Um, he looks at something and may think it's hypocritical, but you know why he thinks it's that way? Because he doesn't understand the full context of it. Thirdly, your response can address this issue. The critic rejects biblical authority, right? 
I mean, if you said, do you, do you take this as your authority? The answer would be no. Do you believe this book? The answer would be no. So then your question back to them would be, so why do you use some of it against me? Now, they're going to say, well, I'm just showing your inconsistency. But they're using other of it. You know, you shall not judge. You shall love, and love is love, right? So they use some of it, but they don't use other of it. But they, can't, you, they cannot use the Bible as an authority to criticize the Bible believer. His, the critic's authority is himself or society's collective mores. Our authority is what? It's not ourselves. That's the thing where people get really mixed up. I am not saying, I, I am saying, but I'm not the original, originator of the saying that marriage of a man and a man is wrong. God said that a long time ago. I'm just repeating it. So our authority is the Scripture, which tells us God's will for humanity. Therefore, ultimately, because we draw from the Scriptures, our authority is God, not man. And then number four, a little along the line of education for the critic, the critic does not understand the entirety of Scriptural revelation and that certain instructions in the Bible are modified depending on the progress of revelation and the dispensation in which we live. Okay, let me see if I, I have this um, somewhere here. Yeah, I, 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 read the, I wrote this in my, uh, in my article that was from 2015. I say this, many progressives have not read the Bible well enough to understand three basic facts. And so what you're doing here is you're actually attacking the criticism on the basis that it's ignorant. Now, nobody likes to hear that, right? <laughs> That's a real uh, declarative statement. But it's an ignorant criticism. First, the Old Testament laws regulated the Jewish nation 3,400 years ago, not the Gentile nations of the world then nor now. Just as American citizens are not regulated by ancient Chinese laws, so we today are not regulated by ancient Jewish law. Does that make sense, that statement? That's a very basic kind of idea, but it's true nonetheless. Second, God is free to change the terms and conditions under which his people live, and in fact, he did so 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and rose again. And that really, I don't spell it out here because I had only 750 words to write this article, but the point of of it was God is in charge here, okay? God is in charge here. He's the sovereign. And then third, the New Testament explicitly and repeatedly states that followers of Jesus are not under the regulatory force of the Jewish law. And I give some scriptural references there, but we won't go those, uh, to those right now. So that's the point of this. Um, on the contrary... Christians see the commands in Leviticus in light of the entire Bible's revelation. Principles of God's holiness are constant, but applications for various situations and settings are different. So the critic is invalid because he does the criticism is invalid because he does not have all of the data upon which to build a proper criticism. And if he did understand the data, he would be much uh, slower to offer criticism than 
he was in the first place. So uh, this is an argument of ignorance on the part of the critic who is not understanding the scriptures. That was, that's what's so you know, troublesome about an authority like our former president lifting a verse out of 32,000 verses and criticizing people for believing that without understanding those other 32,000 verses in the scriptures. It's just taking, it's just the classic you know, problem of people who take sound bites and you can, I have enough skills in the Gold Wave audio editor, I could take a sequence of speech and snip it up and put it back together and make it sound sort of decent if I put some effort into it and make somebody say something they never said. And that has happened before. Um, things are selectively edited out to make somebody look a certain way or to say something or they just take a little snippet out and they don't put the context around it. So yeah, they can say, no, we didn't edit that snippet. Well, you did by taking it out of its context. And taking a verse out of context is a very bad situation. So uh, let's think about um, Leviticus 18.22 then, the passage that forbids a man and a man marrying and being together. Uh, there are passages that, as somebody has said, uh, confirm that this is the case in the uh, New Testament. Let me just uh, touch on some of those. Um, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, gives the positive affirmation of the design of God. Mark 10, 6, Jesus says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, the wife obviously is a woman, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Some have criticized also and said, well, Jesus never condemned uh, gay marriage. Yeah, but he told us what marriage is. He gave us the clear instruction of it in Mark chapter 10. Romans chapter 1 repeats uh, the uh, injunction against this kind of sinful lifestyle. Uh, and elsewhere as well. Actually, well, I'll just touch on this, Romans 1. You folks know it very well, but for the benefit of those that might not be as literate in the Bible, we turn to this, uh, Romans 1 and verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Also the men, likewise, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Uh, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. First Corinthians uh, also. And yeah, and for the benefit of those who would like to censor this, perhaps, just know that I'm educating our people on what the Bible teaches and anyone out there who is wanting to learn what the scriptures teach. Whether you agree with it or not is really irrelevant to me, but you need to know what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Just stop right there for a moment. As I've said many times before, we're not calling out any one of these particular sins for special hatred or opprobrium. We're laying them all out there just like the Bible does. You know, idolatry, 
adultery, homosexuality, sodomy, thievery, covetousness, drunkenness. Ooh. I mean, these are all in the same category. People who live like this, people who are revilers, extortioners, and so on, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's it. It's simple. Uh, anything that violates the God-ordained design of what marriage is, of human sexuality, that falls under the category here of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. The good news is, if you go on in verse 11, it says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So these people in Corinth had some of these sins in their lives and they were removed from them, they were cleansed from them. Uh, there's another verse as well we could use, but it's 1 Timothy 1, 9-10, I'm going to omit that for now just to save time. But I give the, so what I'm doing here is I'm saying, okay, Leviticus 18.22, why does this still apply? The New Testament reaffirms it. And what's the rationale? Let me give the rationale. Sexual morality is constant across time and culture because God designed marriage and sexuality from the beginning, and that design remains the same today. Okay? That positive statement that the Lord gave in Mark 10 still prevails today. But what about another example? What about one where we don't confirm the, uh, the Old Testament law, but rather recognize that it's been changed. Well, the dietary laws our brother brought up uh, have been set aside or reformed, we could say. Let's go to Matthew chapter 15, verse number 11. Matthew 15 and verse number 11. It says, Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the man. We have the same thing in Mark chapter 7. Remember, this is a faithful Jewish man, Jesus, who is saying, more than a man, he's the God-man, but he's saying this. Verse 19 of Mark 7, uh, let me back up in verse 18 here. It says, so he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus, and I think this is Mark's commentary, thus purifying all foods. And then, of course, you have the whole incident of uh, Peter in Acts chapter 10. God tells Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat these animals, let down in this visionary sheet from heaven. And there are all kinds of unclean animals in there. And Peter says, whoa, wait a minute, I can't do that. But God says to him three times, you do what I said, and by that he learned that these animals are not unclean, and thus the people who eat them, the Gentiles, are not unclean either. Anymore, they're not to be considered that way by ministers of the gospel. They're sanctified. This food is sanctified by the word of God and prayer, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4. and so we can recognize that this is changed from the Old Testament. Now, let me say the rationale. What's the rationale for this? Dietary laws were established to set Israel apart from surrounding nations. Not to apply to all nations for all time. Okay, now I've given away something here without saying it. I don't take the uh, health-based argument for the dietary laws. Some people say, well, God gave those laws and they are good for health. 
Well, that may be. Certainly, you can, you can, you know, prepare pork in a way in which it's dangerous. You know, you get your dose of trichinosis or whatever, you know, other bacterial infection that you want to find in a pork uh, situation. But properly prepared, that's not the pro- problem, as we now, as we know, as we understand. So I'm not taking the health argument here. I'm suggesting that the dietary laws were established to set Israel apart from the surrounding nations, not to apply to all nations for all time. Dietary and ceremonial laws became obsolete with the completion of the work of Christ. And I didn't say this in my notes, but what's happening is God is embracing into one church the Jews and the Gentiles being made into one body. So you can't, you can't well divide that uh, body into two still by having different dietary restrictions for the two groups. So that has passed off the scene. The major issue now is not ethnicity or race, Jew or Gentile, but that you're in Christ and in the church. So that's the rationale for that. Uh, and then finally, in, in lieu of the in, in view of the time, the last one was the uh, Sabbath command. And some uh, Christians today still hold that there is a Sabbath, a Christian Sabbath. They've moved it to Sunday. We don't do that because Sabbath is seven, means the seventh day. It's Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week, so you can't move uh, just uh, you know one day to the next, uh, willy-nilly, I'll call it. Um, the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant that God made with Moses. Exodus 31 verse 13 says that. that the Sabbath is a sign for you, for your generations, and you're marking that as a sign for the Jewish nation. Again, it was not for all nations. It was for them and their Mosaic covenant, not for uh, the Philistines or others, not for us today. So far removed from that nation and its laws, and God has set that aside. In fact, um, it's explicit, again, to go to the New Testament and go to the book of Colossians. You don't even have to go to the book of Colossians to find this. Uh, you might remember another portion of Scripture which talks about the Sabbath or the different days of the week. But in Colossians 2.16, Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the things to come, flat out. Uh, denies that somebody, say, from the Hebrew Roots Movement can lay judgment upon you because you don't keep the Sabbath. That's invalid, and you don't allow somebody to do that. Another one is Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, where it says one person esteems one day above another, but another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Um, This became, for me, the basis of helping people with a conscience argument uh, for, uh, for not taking the vaccine, for example, or for other things that they may have a conscience, conscientious objection to. Uh, You have to be fully convinced in your mind that worshiping on Saturday is the way to go 
But this does not allow you to lay that obligation or burden upon someone else in uh, your life or in the church, for instance. And this principle here has been, I think, quite overlooked in this sense. The outside world looks into the church and says, what is the church's position on health care? As if everybody in this assembly has the same exact viewpoint on every detail, or that they have to follow what I, the bishop, say. That is not true at all, and that is not what the Bible teaches about conscience. We have an assembly with with a number of common beliefs and practices, but that doesn't mean that all beliefs and all practices are commonly held by everybody in the assembly. Are you with me so far? So there are some people who believe a certain way about some things and some people who believe an opposite way or a different way about those same things. And this tells us that within one church, you can have people who have different views on this matter of what day or what to eat. Can I eat this meat offered to an idol? Can I eat meat at all? Should I eat pork or shouldn't I eat pork? Why? Uh, should I take a certain vaccine or should I not take a certain vaccine? Uh, should I you know, use in vitro fertilization or should I not use in vitro fertilization? Um, what's another uh, issue? Uh, should I use birth control or not use birth control? Should, you know, all kinds of things that different people are going to have different views on. And conscience cannot be boiled down to what is the conscience of your denomination? That's what's being, you know, do you have an official letter from your denomination that says that this is the viewpoint that you have to hold to be a faithful member of that denomination? No, conscience is not a denominational thing. Conscience is an individual thing. And so the individual's conscience has to be queried and ask what it believes. And so any attempt to kind of corporatize that conscience is invalid in my view, and we need to stand up against that and remind people that even in our church, we have people with different conscientious views on certain things that are not demanded of them to hold to be faithful members of the church. Um, well, so anyway, how did I get on that? Well, that was all about the, uh, the Sabbath in that particular case. And somebody must be fully convinced in their own mind that they are going to worship on Saturday or worship on Sunday or treat every day kind of, you know, Symmetrically, if, if you will. Others, you know, really elevate a day. You, you know, be convinced about that. But remember, and we'll look at this later, uh, Romans 14, 12 says, Each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. That means you worry about your business. And don't cast a stumbling block in your brother's way or demand that he believe exactly the same way you do on some conscience issue. If you're not sure if it's an issue that's uh, some kind of uh, indifferent matter or something, then uh, you know, certainly seek counsel about that. Uh, you, know, you can't, as I've said before, you can't just throw everything into the bucket of, well, that's an, that's an indifferent matter and I'll just, I'll just do whatever my conscience tells me to do. No, there are a lot of matters that the Bible directs you on specifically that you should believe, but not in that particular case. So I hope this is helpful to you as a way to respond to a critic that way. Show their inconsistency, point out their ignorance, 
show the uh, whole, the totality of the scriptures, uh, you know, sh- show that their own mindset of relativism undercuts their whole argument. Those sorts of approaches, as their brother, you know, illustrated, uh, take take their view to the to the uh, logical end of it and show the absurdity of it. Those things help will help you to respond and give a reason, a defense and a reason for the hope that lies within you. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and the time we've been able to spend together, uh, hopefully uh, offering a little bit of help and causing us to think about this matter that we will face at some point if we're out uh, evangelizing or speaking about our faith and help us to be well equipped and ready to respond to somebody who asks a reason for why we believe what we believe. We can do so, Lord, with meekness and gentleness, reverence, uh, kindness, but we can do so with firmness and with truth. And help us, I pray, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.